If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. Peace be upon you. A submitter's art objective is to perfect our religion, to be able to become the utmost submitter. And this is an ideal that we shoot for, that we have no clue when we will reach. Because just as we think, you know, there can't be any uh, higher, God gives us an opportunity to grow and develop our soul even further, to come to a deeper understanding. In the book Mastery, written by uh, Robert Greene, it reads, In order to master a field, you must love the subject and feel a profound connection to it. Your interests must transcend the field itself and border on the religious. And we're blessed because if our goal in this life is to strive in the cause of God, this is a religion. And in 6161, it reads, Say, my Lord has guided me in the straight path, the perfect religion of Abraham, monotheism. He never was an idol worshiper. Say, my contact purse a lot, my worship practices, my life and my death are all devoted absolutely to God alone, the Lord of the universe. He has no partner. This is what I am commanded to believe, and I am the first to submit. And 2.165 reads, Those who believe love God the most. If we believe, if we want to please God, then we love God the most, and we try everything, every opportunity we have, we try to draw closer and closer to God, to perfect our religion. It continues in the book, it says, A false path in life is generally something we are attracted to for the wrong reasons money, fame, attention, and so on. If it is attention we need, we often experience a kind of emptiness inside that we are hoping to fill with the false love of public approval. And as submitters, what we aim to do is to please God. Now, it's nice to get uh, appreciation and thanks from uh, the people we, we aim to serve, but our ultimate goal is to please God to do the things that please him. In 76.8, it says they donate their favorite food to the poor, the orphan, and the captive. We feed you for the sake of God. We expect no reward from you, nor thanks. We fear from our Lord a day that is full of misery and trouble. And this is the words of a believer, is that what they do in this world, all the righteousness they do, they do it for the sake of God. And that is a reward that far transcends anything of this world. We're not looking for money. We're not looking for fame, exaltation. When our purpose is strictly to please God, irrespective if we get acknowledged for it or not, then we know we're on the right path. And this is how we achieve mastery. This is how we perfect our religion. And the aspect is we have to constantly be striving, constantly be changing to improve our situation. The only way we can do that is not through just knowledge. It's through caring about it. It says we don't change because of what we know, we change because we care. Meaning I can give someone information, but that information is not going to impact them unless they care to change. In 1311, it says shifts of angels take turns staying with each one of you. They are in front of you and behind you, and they stay with you and guard you in accordance with God's commands. 
Thus, God does not change the condition of any people unless they themselves make the decision to change. So God is giving us this opportunity every day to make minor, gradual improvements to perfecting our religion. And there's a Netflix documentary, it's a Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it's about this 85-year-old man who perfected the art of making sushi. Now, he's been making sushi for over 60 years. And you would think there's nothing else he could possibly learn about making sushi. But he's constantly improving. And one of the quotes from the movie, it's, uh, he says, We don't care about money. All I want to do is make better sushi. I do the same thing over and over, improving bit by bit. There's always a yearning to achieve more. I'll continue to climb, trying to reach the top, but no one knows where the top is. Now, I don't know what <laughs> Jiro's uh, uh, spiritual status is, but this continuous striving is something as believers we can learn from. It says trying to reach a top, but no one knows where that top is. There is no limit to the level of righteousness we can achieve in this world. But what we do know is every day God is presenting us with opportunities to grow and develop our souls. And if we truly care, if we truly love God the most, we're going to nurture every single one of these opportunities to gradually, bit by bit, improve our submission to God alone. When they were interviewing one of the apprentices of uh, uh, Jiro, he said that he was being an apprentice for 10 years before they would even allow him to cook egg sushi. And even then, after 10 years, the first 200 attempts of making egg sushi was rejected because it wasn't good enough. Now, the average person going through this uh, struggle is going to think that this is terrible. This is, you know, why would I go through this? Why am I, you know, uh, putting up with so much misery? But the reality is this is what it takes to achieve perfection. This is what it takes to achieve mastery meaning that we're going to continuously go through the same process over and over and over. And slowly, inch by inch, we're going to improve to the point that we make something that's perfect. And God willing, that's in our religion. Now, what's funny is when he finally achieved uh, egg sushi that wasn't rejected, he said he was so happy he almost cried. And it wasn't for the sake of he didn't want to show his emotions to the other people. He was happy because he achieved something. And this is something that God puts in each and every one of us, that we're going to come to the same situation. We're going to see the growth and development we've had over the years. And it's going to give us a sense of joy, a sense of um, righteous pride is the best way I can put it. It's because it's a blessing. We acknowledge that this is a blessing that God has given us, that this is out of God's mercy that we've achieved this. So it's not out of ego. It's not out of exaltation. We're doing it because we're appreciative of God. And... Um, each day, we're given this opportunity, these opportunities to do good, to, to commemorate God, to meditate, to, to worship God. And how we use those moments, how we use this day is going to reflect on us when we uh, meet our Lord on the day of judgment. Leonardo da Vinci has a quote that says, just as a well-filled day brings blessed sleep, so well-employed life brings a blessed death. Meaning how we spend this life is going to determine the quality of death that we have. That on the day of resurrection, when we're resurrected and we're meeting face-to-face -face with our Lord, that we're going to think back and say, I use this life appropriately. What you heard at the beginning of the podcast was a commencement speech from uh, U.S. Navy Admiral William McRaven. And uh, the title of the speech is, If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. 
And it's so profound, something so small as making your bed can give you a sense of accomplishment. And this is a task that you can utilize every single day. And I remember I personally, uh, this hits home for me is because growing up, I used to completely resent this act of having to make my bed. I didn't understand. You know, I remember my mom would ask me, did you make your bed? And I'm just thinking like, look, I'm going to go to sleep at night. I'm going to mess up the covers anyway. And I'm going to have to repeat this process every single day. You know, why do I have to do this? And something something occurred to me. If you're appreciative, how do you show your appreciation? And to me, showing my appreciation to God for blessing me with a comfortable bed, security, warmth, uh, a pillow, all these you know simple things that we just take for granted, I could show my appreciation by making my bed. And in return, when I have a nicely made bed, when I come home after school and uh, I would see my bed, I would feel like I've accomplished something, that a nice clean room, I had order in my life, and it allowed me to transform this into appreciation. And people think that worshiping God and being a hard worker, being dedicated uh, employee, being a good family member, that these are mutually exclusive. That in order to be the utmost submitter, you have to refrain from these other aspects to dedicate more uh, time to uh, uh, to God. And these two are not mutually exclusive. In order to be the utmost submitter, we have to ingrain God into every aspect of our life. I remember someone asking me, they're heading off to college and they wanted to uh, go to medical school. And they were concerned that if they went to medical school due to the amount of time and commitment that medical school requires, they wouldn't be able to be as good of a submitter as they like. And to me, my response to them was like, no, what happens is because you're a good submitter, you're going to become that much better of a medical student because you're going to be that much more appreciative of everything you learn in every moment when you are able to apply this wisdom that God has bestowed upon you to help other people to grow and develop your uh, skill set in your work. You can apply that by remembering and being appreciative of God. Everything we do in our life, we have the opportunity to remember and be appreciative. And it's up to us if we choose to do that. And what's interesting is so much of our religion seems repetitive by nature. You think five times a day, we do our salat, we do our contact prayer. 17 times a day, we're reciting the fatia. And each time we're doing this, are we taking the time, the consideration to do it the perfect way we can or strive a little, little more towards perfection? Jiro spent 60 plus years still striving to make the perfect sushi. And we are given a blessing more profound than anything we can contemplate in order to have a direct connection with God? And are we giving it the level of care and attention that we should, that each time we have the opportunity to perform our contact prayer, are we thinking 100% about God? Are we remembering God? You know, are we distracted by the day-to-day? I'm guilty of it. I'm sure, you know, many other people are as well, where you think you have these few minutes throughout your day that you're supposedly dedicating 100% to God. Now, you still get the credit if you do your contact prayer and your mind is somewhere else, but I guarantee that if we can do that as a uh, moment to think only about God, to not be distracted by, you know, what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to go, what I'm going to eat, how traffic's going to be like, or the uh, miscellaneous errands I have to run or whatever, that we are going to be able to grow and develop our soul 
more so. This is a huge opportunity. One of the greatest blessings that God has given mankind is the contact purse. And this is a testament because Abraham, one of the closest companions, human companions to God, that God called him his close friend, this is extremely kind and clement. He could have asked God for anything. And what did he ask God for? He asked him for the contact prayers and God showed him how to perform the contact prayers to draw closer to God. And it just goes to show the level of priority. Now, every day in our life, we have the opportunity five times a day at designated times to perform this contact prayer, to think about God, to try to distance ourselves from the day-to-day -day interactions that we have to deal with, to just think 100% about God alone. And how are we using those moments? Are we trying to perfect it? Are we trying to draw closer to God to perform the perfect contact prayer? And same thing with other aspects in our life. God tells us before we say we're going to do anything in the future that we're supposed to say God willing because we have to constantly remember God. Before you eat food, you say, Bismillah Rahman Rahim. That again, you're thinking about food. You're thinking about God. <laughs> you're thinking about God as you're about to take a bite. And this is just an opportunity. This is something you do day in, day out. We eat food. And same thing in the, the, the flip side is when Ramadan starts and we refrain from eating food, that when you feel hungry, when you feel thirsty, that it's an opportunity to think about God, to draw closer to God, to be appreciative for the food we have. It's such a blessing. You, you think about uh, what misery people are just by taking this one provision away, food, when they're hungry, they're cranky. And it's something that we have access to. And each time we go to eat, we go to drink something, we have an opportunity to really think about God, to be appreciative of God. And the list continues. When we see something beautiful, we say, SubhanAllah, glory be to God. When someone compliments us, we say, MashaAllah, this is God's gift. And these are all opportunities. And it's funny that people see this as repetition, but the way I view it is this is an opportunity for perfection, for mastery. And one of the funniest things is most people, when they first start reading the Quran that complain about it, is they say, oh, it's so repetitive. Well, I get it. God is most gracious, most merciful. And I laugh. I say, you really get it? I mean, you could spend a lifetime just meditating on what it means to be most gracious, most merciful, and you will never fully grasp the extent of what that means. We think someone who gives money, gives charity, uh, feeds the poor, that this person is gracious. And God is telling us that he is most gracious. He's great, more gracious than we can possibly imagine. And if we could just grasp 1% of what that means, we could draw so much closer to God. And this repetition in the Quran is for us to contemplate, to think. There is a um, uh, YouTube video, uh, I believe it's uh, entitled The More You Know, and uh, he takes you know these different tasks, and it was awesome. He had a bike that was rigged, so when you go left, it turns right, and when you turn right, it goes left. And the question was, how long, how difficult is it to ride this bike? Now, what's funny is you say, look, I'm an adult. I know how to ride a bike. I've been riding a bike forever. I'll sh I should be able to pick this up pretty quick. And what he came to realize was that it took weeks and weeks of effort and practice for him to be able to readjust his brain to be able to ride a bike that when you turn left, it goes right. And when you go right, it turns left. And he would give people all across the, wor uh, the world this challenge. Can you ride this bike just 10 feet, just a few feet? And no one can do it because it takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes perfection, mastery in order to be able to achieve that. And this is what it comes down to. There is a difference between knowing and understanding. Knowing that God is most gracious, most merciful is fundamentally different than understanding God is most gracious, most merciful. 
I still cannot wrap my head around that. You read these verses from the Quran and they're so deep, so packed with knowledge and information that we can spend a lifetime contemplating just one verse and not be able to fully grasp it. And this is a blessing from God. And this is what it means to strive to perfect our religion. Because if we truly understood that God is most gracious, most merciful, that not an atom is out of our Lord's control, how differently would we behave in our day-to-day life? If we knew that God is doing absolutely everything, how much different would our interactions in the day be? If we knew that every single ounce, every single atom of good deeds we do in this life is going to pay us back manifold, how much more would we take that seriously? If we knew just how much nourishment the contact prayers, the salat, give our soul, how much more enthusiastic and how much more uh, thrilled would we be and how much more focused would we be when we perform the contact prayers? And this is something it takes a lifetime to understand, even one bit of it. And this is why God advocates for us to meditate. In 1779, it says, During the night you shall meditate for extra credit, that your Lord may raise you to an honorable rank and say, My Lord, admit me in honorable admittance. Let me depart an honorable departure and grant me from you a powerful support. The truth has prevailed and falsehood has vanished. Falsehood will inevitably vanish. When we meditate, we're taking our submission game to a new level. And in 5040, it says, During the night you shall meditate on his name and after prostrating. By meditating on God, we're able to create a simulation to look into the words of God, to try to get a deeper understanding of it so we can apply it to our day-to-day life. They did a study. They took 144 basketball players and they split them into two groups. One group, they were told, hey, we want you to practice shooting a free throw with one arm. And for two weeks, that's all they did. They practiced shooting a free throw with one arm. And the other group, they said, look, We want you to meditate and imagine yourself shooting a free throw with one arm for two weeks. And they did. And then after the two weeks, they tested the two groups to see how much improvement they made. And what they found out was that the team that meditated on just practicing shooting a free throw with one arm improved just as much as the one who actually did it. Now, we have a short life in this world to be able to perfect our religion And meditation, as God says, is extra credit. It's a way for us to go above and beyond our day-to-day interactions that we can contemplate and really think about God. And it's funny, most people, when they think of meditation, they think about, you know, (laughs) sitting in front of a beach, cross-legged, and, uh, you know, uh, your uh, eyes are closed and your (laughs) sunset's coming and this and that. And it's nonsense. Meditation is just deep contemplation, really stopping and thinking and trying to grasp what it is that God is telling us. And what happens is when we meditate, literally our physiology, our biology, our uh, uh, neurology is all being shifted in order for us to be able to become appreciative, to be able to come closer to God. There's a book, it's written, it's called Molecules of Emotion. And um, what it talks about is that when you feel an emotion, your body's releasing peptides and all your cells, they have these receptors that are targeted towards these various peptides that are uh, tied to your emotions. And when your cells replicate, whatever emotion you've been feeling the most, it's going to replicate with more receptors for that emotion to the point that your physiology is going to reflect whatever it is that you're feeling. 
In 14.7 it reads, Your Lord has decreed, the more you thank me, the more I give you. But if you turn unappreciative, then my retribution is severe. This choice is ours. What do we choose to fill our thoughts with? If we're filling our thoughts with being appreciative, being grateful, being thankful, you know, thinking about God, literally our cells are going to replicate with more receptors looking to reinforce that belief. Our physiology is physically going to change. In addition, our neurology, when we have a thought, there is electrical pulses that are running through our uh, axons. And the more times we trigger that thought, the more those electrical pulses get um, reinforced. Because what happens when you have that thought, myelin, which is, serves as an insulator to create higher signal integrity for that uh, thought pattern, is going to get reinforced on those neurons. And what happens is whatever there's an expression says neurons that fire together, wired together. And what we're doing is reinforcing these beliefs. And we have a choice. This is the way that God designed us. Whatever we focus on, whatever we think about, whatever we spend our time meditating on, these are the thoughts that we're going to gravitate towards. If all we see is misery and frustration and anger and how terrible things are, that's all we're going to reinforce in our belief. But if we see all the blessings that God has given us, despite how dire whatever it may appear from the outside, and we trust in God wholeheartedly, and we think about the words that God has given to us through the Quran, we're going to reinforce those beliefs both in our physiology and in our minds. And God tells us in 1975 and 76 is say, those who choose to go astray, the most gracious will lead them on until they see what is promised for them, either the retribution or the hour. That is when they find out who really is worse uh, is worse off and weaker in power. God augments the guidance of those who choose to be guided for the good deeds are eternally rewarded by your Lord and bring far better returns. So whoever chooses to go astray, God is going to lead them in that way. And that's in our physiology. We're designed that way. We're going to have confirmation bias. Our neurons are going to wire in that uh, way accordingly to confirm whatever it is that we're contemplating, thinking about. And same thing, if we choose to believe, God's going to augment our belief. He's going to give us more reasons to believe. It's going to make things more apparent for us. And the awesome thing is God says the more appreciative you are, the more he's going to give you because you're going to acknowledge all these blessings and it's a positive feedback loop, but it works in the other way. If we become unappreciative, we're going to reinforce those beliefs. We're going to find more reasons to be unappreciative and either one we choose is up to us. We can either side with God and God's blessings and all the blessings he's given us and all the things we have to be appreciative for, or we can side with Satan and get misery and frustration and poverty and uh, just uh, look at everything in a um, doom and gloom kind of circumstances. And we want to get to a point where our beliefs correspond with our actions and it's second nature. That when all of a sudden something happens in our life that startles us, we resort to what we've practiced. We don't think that, hey, look, I'm not going to practice and all of a sudden, you know, uh, I'm going to handle a situation. No, we have to constantly reinforce these beliefs because we're going to be called to account at some point in our life to be tested, to see what we're made of. And if we're resorting to our second nature, what's instinctive for us, if we don't condition ourselves accordingly, we're going to fail. And God gives us the example in 3155. It says, surely those among you who turned back the day the two armies clashed have been duped by the devil. This reflects some of the evil works they had committed. God has pardoned them. God has forgiven Clement. Meaning that if we want to be able to overcome these obstacles when they're presented to us, to be able to capitalize on these opportunities to grow and develop our soul, it has to correspond with our thoughts and our actions. 
And the fact that these people, when they were, uh, you know, in battle, that they turned around and fled, it showed the evil works they've done because they did not grow and develop their souls. That's why it's more important what we do every day than what we do every once in a while. Because the reality is what we do every day is going to dictate what we do every once in a while. And um, we want to be able to perform at our utmost when the opportunity arises. God says uh, that every single one of us, when we say we believe, we're going to be put to the test. And one of the tactics that the devil does is he tries to get us to forget. In 668, it says, if you see those who mock our revelations, you shall avoid them until, until they delve into another subject. If the devil causes you to forget, then as soon as you remember, do not sit with such evil people. The devil is going to continuously make us forget about these revelations, about the commandments of God, about all the reasons to be appreciative. And we have to constantly reinforce the belief in God, reinforce the reasons to be appreciative, reinforce the message in the Quran. And one of the ways we do that is by being cognizant of the day of judgment, being cognizant that one day this life is going to end and we're going to be resurrected and meeting face to face with our creator. And if we truly understood that, if we truly believe that to our core, how would we live our life? God has given us a lifelong chance. Any good deed we do in this life is going to pay us back manifold on the hereafter. And in order to be able to really take that to heart, we have to be cognizant of the hereafter. God gives us the examples of the uh, the prophets in 38, 45, and 46. It reads, remember also our servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were resourceful and possessed vision. We bestowed upon them a great blessing, awareness of the hereafter. Being aware of the hereafter, being cognizant that we are going to face God on the day of judgment is a huge blessing. And what we spend this life thinking about is going to come back and either benefit us or be our biggest detriment. Because God warns us that in 70, uh, 51 and 32, 14, that if we forget them on that day because they forgot that day, Meaning that if we're not conscious of God, if we're not thinking about God, can you imagine the only entity that we are aiming to please on the day of judgment is going to be God. And because we did not spend this life thinking about God, God is going to forget us on the day of judgment. And this is an opportunity for us. Our opportunity is to spend this life, to think about God, to commemorate God, to meditate on God, to draw closer to God, to the point that every cell, every neuron in our body is going to be imploring God, is going to be thinking about God, to the point that our belief is second nature. When the devil tempts us with something and we resort to our instincts, our instincts are guided to be righteous. In 2.152, it reads, you shall remember me that I may remember you and be thankful to me. Do not be unappreciative. In 263 and 7171, it reads, You shall uphold what we have given you strongly and remember its contents that you may be saved. We have to remember what God is telling us in the Quran, the message, the assurances, the all the blessings that God has given us, the wisdom, the knowledge, in order to be uh, successful. And God tells us at the Friday prayer, it says, Once a prayer is completed, you may spread through the land to seek God's bounties and continue to remember God frequently that you may succeed. And the most important thing is that, you know, five times a day when we're doing our contact prayer, we're doing our salat, that we're spending that time remembering God. In 2014, it reads, I am God, there is no other God beside me. You shall worship me alone and observe the contact prayer salat to remember me. So think about Jiro. Jiro spent 60 plus years 
perfecting sushi. And he still thinks there's room to improve. And every day God is giving us this opportunity to perfect our religion, to allow us to repeat this process, to get to the point where when we perform our contact prayers, we're thinking 100% about God. When we get up in the morning, the first thing that we say that comes out of our mouth is Bismillah Rahman Rahim, that we mention God's name. That before we eat any food, we mention God's name. These are all opportunities for us to grow and develop our souls because on the day of resurrection, when we're resurrected, the only thing we want to be thinking about is God because the only person we want us to remember to remember us is God. God willing, we're going to end there. I'm going to end with a quote. This is from uh, T.S. Eliot. It says, We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. So these tasks, they seem repetitive. They seem inconsequential in the sense that it's like, why do I have to do this day in and day out? And what we don't realize, these are huge opportunities. And when we make this progress, all of a sudden we see these tasks that we had to do that we were given the opportunity to do in a whole new light. And it draws us closer to God. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com or on Twitter at talkcron. And until next time, peace. And God bless. Jad, Robert, Radio Lab. We're back now with Walter Bukowski, who's going to tell us the third and final of his hero stories. And he told us well, that of all the cases he's heard, and, uh, this is the one that on puzzles him the most. It's the case of Wesley James Autry, a, a construction worker from uh, New York, 50-year-old man, who did jump into the uh, track bed in a subway station to remove a uh, fellow, a young man, who had fallen onto the track. The gentleman was uh, six foot, hundred and eighty pounds. He was he was inert, and yet Mr. Autry persisted despite the fact that a train was coming. There would come a point, at least at least in my estimation, where you would have to say, "I have to get out of here because I'm going to be killed. I'm I'm not suicidal." But Mr. Autry didn't think that way. He and I part in this in this manner. What he did was he lay atop the victim between the rails while the train passed over them. In the farthest reaches of my imagination, I can see myself jumping onto a subway track to attempt the rescue. What I can't see myself doing is lying atop the victim while the train passes over me. Making this story even more nuts? When we finally met up with Wesley Autry on the platform where this incident happened, 135th and Broadway, he explained to us that his daughters had been with him. They was okay. And uh, how old were your daughters? At that time, time? my daughter was four and six, and this, this, them there. (laughs) Showed us picture. Oh my God! Super cute. Uh, The one behind me is Shuki, and this is the baby Sashi. So when they're standing there, and this guy starts convulsing, and then eventually falls off the platform onto the tracks, right as a train is coming. His choice is pretty stark. In order to save this complete stranger, he's got to leave his daughters behind, potentially without a dad. I'm looking at him shaking and going into another seizure. For some strange reason, a voice out of nowhere said, don't worry about your own, don't worry about your daughters. You can do this. So he jumps, runs to the guy. Is he conscious? No, no. Tries to grab the guy's hand. And each time I grab this hand, we'll slip apart. And when he slip. I look up, the train is getting closer. I grab his hand again, we'll slip apart. The train is closer. 50 feet, 20 feet, 10 feet, 
and then it's right there. And all he can do is grab the guy, get him in a bear hug, and flatten his body against the guy as much as he can. The first train car just grazed my calves. Oh my God. Oh my train God. car went right over and them. When the train came to a stop, four to five cars passed over us. I looked them in the eye, I said, excuse me, you seem to have a seizure or something. I don't know you, you don't know me. So I just kept talking to him until he came through. And he was like, well, where are we? I'm like, we're underneath a train. He said, well, who are you? I said, I came down to save your life. So he kept asking me, are we dead or are we in heaven? I gave him a slight pinch on his arm. He's like, ouch. I said, see, you, you're very much alive. Have you, did you ever ask yourself at this point, like, what am I doing here? I well, mean, he asked it, what am I doing here? Well, what about I you? My, I can hear the two ladies who had my daughter standing in, in between their legs. I can hear my daughter screaming. So when that train come to a stop, uh, I yelled up from underneath the train, excuse me, I'm the father, we're okay. I just want to let my daughters know that, uh, that I'm okay because I know that they are worried about me. Everybody started clapping. Can I ask you a question? So it, the point at which you said you heard a voice yes. that said, I can do this. I can do this. What's cr what, what is amazing to me is that you was, left your daughters right here and dive after a guy you don't well, know. He was a stranger, total stranger, but you know what? The mission wasn't come completed. I was chose for that. You felt chose, like you, I you felt were chosen. I felt like I was the chosen one. Wow. But for a religious person though, I would wonder, why me? Well, you know what? Uh, Maybe 20 years ago, I was supposed to be at a certain point. And then he explained to us exactly why he had jumped. He was the one guy who could. He said right before his feet left the platform, this one specific moment from his life flashed to mind. This thing that happened, you know, uh, I had a gun pulled to my temple, but, you know, it was a misfire. So, you know. A gun was put to your head and yes. missed. So you were almost dead for a oh, second I was or two. almost dead. You know, oh, so you think you might have been spared for a purpose? I was spared for a reason. After that moment, he says, when the gun went click and he didn't die, he always wondered, why had God spared him that moment? Until he was on the platform and he saw the guy fall off. He says then he knew, this is why. I can, I can do this. It's just, I can do this. I can do this. That voice, when that voice said that you're going to be okay, I knew everything was going to work out. 